Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we are in a study of Peter's second letter. We turn now again to 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we're going to go rather slowly through these areas of growth, these character qualities or virtues that Peter teaches us in verse 5. But let me start back at verse 1 and remind you of where we've come from in the context of this exhortation as faith always precedes duty in the Christian life. Let's come to 2 Peter chapter 1, and starting in verse 1, we read these words. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and he has forgotten that he is cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we consider virtue and its meaning for us today, adding this to our faith, we pray that truly your divine and healing virtues, your great strength and precious promises, your divine power would be at work in us. We confess that in us, that is in our flesh, nothing good dwells. We therefore look to that healing power of Christ. Even as the people in the Gospel of Mark we read were sure that if he would bless us, bless them, they would be blessed indeed. If he cleansed, they would be cleansed. So now we look to you and we say, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. Give the word and your servant will be clean. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, in light of the very sad funeral this week that we heard about, I'm very sorry to have to announce another tragic loss to you. However, after a long and labored illness, unable at last to sustain her fight for life, the idea of virtue has now passed away in America and is being laid to rest this, even as we speak. Virtue's death was both slow and painful, I'm afraid. Yes, virtue is survived by her stepped daughter, Values, who says that she's happy to see her go. But in mourning the loss of virtue, I hope that you are too, um, and perhaps I should not be making light of such a serious matter as this. Virtue, 
has had a long and venerable life. Uh, Plato and Aristotle and the classical philosophers wrote extensively on it, especially what was called later the four cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And even as I say that, you know that we don't speak like that anymore. We don't talk about such things. Virtue, temperance, fortitude, both the words and the things they describe are all but gone from our culture, vocabulary, and consciousness. You know, it's not even safe to talk about the word virtue anymore, only values. Virtue means moral excellence of character, and it assumes that something is superior to something else. But since that's denied in our postmodern society, we can only use the word values. Values are those qualities selected and emphasized by a community. To follow that, I realize that's a little philosophical for this early in the morning. Virtue and values. What's the difference? Well, if some have pointed out, Adolf Hitler had values. George Washington had virtues. And when virtue is denied, the virtuous must be brought down. And so it is today with George Washington and others. But we can take comfort in this. We are hardly the first Christians to live in a world feeling out of place, a world that is all mixed up about virtue. The people to whom this letter is addressed, these Christians in Asia, felt just as out of place as we do. In his first letter to them, Peter wrote to encourage them to endure the persecution that was coming from without, for they were even then suffering and some dying for their faith. But here in 2 Peter, he writes to strengthen them to withstand the insidious threat from within as false teachers were introducing destructive errors leading people into immorality. The antidote to that problem in part, which we'll see in chapter 2, is the cultivation of what we have here called virtue. Uh, in verse 5, add to your faith virtue. And that will be our study for this morning. I can see how excited you are about the study of virtue. I've gone far enough, I think, without defining the word, because I know that some of the younger generation are already confused about what I'm talking about. The, the words sound so strange. What are these concepts? What is virtue? Some translations say goodness. Others say moral excellence. That's pretty good. Here's the idea. Uh, you remember the Pharisees? who were very careful in keeping the law. They had a very advanced ethical system. And they were very devoted to the practices of devotion, worship, prayer, fasting, and so forth. Well, if they did what God told them to do, and they were devoted in the way that God told them to be devoted, what were they lacking? Jesus points out time and again that they lacked the right heart and the right motive. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh, they pray. Yes, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. They fast, disfiguring their faces to show men they are fasting. And virtue 
is always linked to the motives and intentions of the heart. Virtue is a quality of soul or of character that results in doing the right things. So when Jesus describes the weightier matters of the law as things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, he's not speaking about specific acts. He's speaking about commitments of the heart, habits of behavior, spiritual longings within us that, yes, of course, lead to specific acts. But did you know that you can do the right thing in the right way and it be totally wrong in God's eyes because you've done it for the wrong reason? The Bible, for instance, says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Godliness, brothers and sisters, isn't just a matter of what you do or how you do it. It's not just a matter of duty and devotion and obedience to God. It's the cultivation of character and a heart that reflects the character and heart of God himself. It's not enough to do. We have to learn to be. It's what Frank Sinatra said. Do, be, do, be, do. <laughs> Biblical godliness requires virtue. It's the be part. And let me give you three brief points, and then I'll give you some practical lesson from this. All virtues are God's virtues. They all grow in the soil of faith. And they're all forged in the fire of experience, to mix my metaphors. That's my study with you for today, and then practical point, but all virtues, or I should, my first point is all true virtues are God's virtues. All true virtues are God's virtues. Verse 3, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue virtue, same word. The ESV uh, changes this translation here. I know you, many of you are reading that excellent translation, but for some reason it uses a different word in verse 3 and verse 5. Uh, verse 3 says, he called us to his, own, to his own glory and excellence. That excellence word is the same word as in verse 5, his own virtue. Uh, not sure why they made the change, called us to his own moral excellence, his own virtue. But here's the point. Christian virtues have God's character as their source, the Holy Spirit as their power within us, and Christ as their model in order that we might be conformed to his likeness and bring glory to him. Because Christian virtue is the Holy Spirit's work, we are forbidden to boast as if it were our own doing. For example, it says we are not to boast in our own righteousness, which doesn't exist, but the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. Or Paul writes, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is a humble man who recognizes God has made all the difference 
any grace uh, that he has, he was given. For all virtues are God's virtues, which he works in us. So, to make it a little simpler, bad people can still do good things. Good in that the thing that they do is good, and even good in how they do it. I mean, I read that Stalin was kind to his children. And Hitler's favorite camera pose was with him gently holding furry animals or little children. Isn't that sweet? Evil people can do good, but they lack the capacity to be good. And therefore, even what they do is tainted. So the courage of a kamikaze pilot is not the same courage that we are taught in the Bible, drawn from the strength of the Lord. The zeal of the American business magnet to climb the ladder is not the same zeal that God is commanding us to have for the name of the Lord of hosts. Many virtues are praised both by the world as well as by the word of God. But because they do not have the love and glory of God as their impulse, and because they are not the fruit of God's spirit, the world's virtues are actually not the same Christian virtues at all, because it is the heart of the matter we're talking about. Bad motives even make good deeds bad. It's as simple as that. Bad motives make even good deeds bad. So when Sir Winston Churchill was a young soldier in Cuba in 1895, he demonstrated great courage under fire in battle, which we can rightly admire. But then we cringe to read in a letter home to his mother that his courage was motivated by a desire to get a medal that he hoped to wear at a dance or a ball when he returned to England. In fact, many great things in history have been achieved for ignoble reasons. God is the only standard for any virtue, love, compassion, justice, or goodness, you name it. And God, therefore, imparts his own character qualities to his children, the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and so forth. The Bible's lists of virtues are not generic lists of do's and don'ts. They are the character qualities of God himself. It's the character of God that we're talking about. Abiding in Christ produces the fruit of his virtue in us. Or again, verse 3 in our passage, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is no godliness or godly life that doesn't start from and live on divine power. Or as Paul says elsewhere, you need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we live by the Spirit, we need to walk by the Spirit, and so forth. So I, I say this because the, the ancients, the old philosophers and so forth, they did a lot of good work, frankly, on virtue. But it had a limited effect on ancient society. And ultimately, it's because it's impossible to be good without God. Not good as God defines it. Goodness requires doing the right thing in the right way with the right heart, motive, and character. And if you're not a Christian, but you think you're a good person, you might take this to heart. You might ask 
how much you've done or not done for the thanks and the glory of the one who made you? Or are all those good things you're doing for lesser motives? Have you fallen, like we all have, very far short of the glory of God? I know I have. But in summary, Christian character should not be confused with the world's morality or virtue. You can even do what God said in the way that God says it, but without the intention and heart and character behind it, Jesus says it's miserable hypocrisy. All true virtues are God's virtues, from him, through him, to him. Point one. Uh, Second, all true virtues grow in the soil of faith. They all grow in the soil of faith. Again, verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. We looked at this last week and why we needed to start with faith for all these things, but I'll be brief today. You have to start with faith because, well, first it's faith that unites us to Christ, and without faith it's impossible to please God, the Bible says. It's also impossible to make any progress, as I previously explained. So Peter, like the other biblical authors, first tells us, reminds us here, verses 3 and 4, what God has done for us, the precious faith we've received, and then he goes on to tell us what we must do and how we must respond to God's gift. First, as always, faith and then action. This also means, listen, that a wrong view of God inevitably leads to a failure to enjoy and to grow in His grace. Failure, for example, to appreciate His fatherly love, His kindness, His generosity of heart leads us in the same path into a life that bears little fruit and makes little progress. Verse 9 He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his old sins. Don't you remember what Jesus has done for you? In other words, rekindle your faith that you would not lack these virtues. If I could be philosophical for a moment, um, the divorce of virtue from the mind, from intellect, uh, like in school, for instance, as they, they, they just tell you what to know. They don't give you any character, right? That's been a prominent feature of modernity, and Christians are absolutely against this. We, in order to make any progress uh, in virtue, we also must make progress in faith. Progress in faith to make progress in virtue in life. We need to know what we believe in order that we must know what we would do and not forget what has happened, as Peter put it. All right. Walter Marshall was the, uh, uh, a man that was really known for one book, a book that he published in 1692 called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, uh, a book that's all about this one point. All success in virtue grows from faith. We have to constantly remind ourselves what Christ has done for us, what he's been to us, how he's broken the dominion of sin in our lives and set us free and given us divine power for life and godliness and so forth as Peter opens it up. Marshall's chapters, therefore, are all directions that start with 
faith and end up in life, like number 12 here, diligently use faith for performing the duties of the law, walking no longer according to your old state principles, but according to the new state you receive by faith, its principles and means of practice. Well, in other words, you are children of God. That's faith. Now live as dear children, as imitators of God. That's practice. You have received the Holy Spirit. That's faith. Now walk in the Spirit. That's practice. You, you can't have one without the other. You, 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 they grow in the soil of faith. And this means that we can't rest happy having faith but no virtue. We have to add it on. Knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. We have to cultivate virtue and reject what one man called bobblehead Christianity. Get it? You know the bobbleheads? Really big heads. They sit there. They nod at you in the car. Right? A Christianity that has all the stuff in the head, but where is the character and the virtue? Our culture, and certainly education, reveres rationality while it's experiencing a total collapse of character. They've divorced what God says needs to be held together. People today study the issues diligently, but then, you see, they completely fall short in how they are engaging in those issues. Some Christians have so emphasized the need of conversion that they don't know what to do what's next after they've believed and are saved. Peter says, well, here's a good place to start. Add to your faith virtue. Point two, all virtues grow in the soil of faith. Third, and finally, all true virtues are forged in the furnace of experience forged in the furnace of experience, this opening appeal to virtue, as I've already mentioned to you, is set in a context, an important context, a trial, both of a great persecution in the world and a great moral struggle in the life of the church. And Peter, with these things, is fortifying the believers, strengthening them, getting them to grow to move forward so that they do not drift back, to be strong that they be not overcome. God uses these life circumstances, we read, to exercise the very grace He's given to us, causing us to grow in Christ-like character. For example, Peter writes in his first letter, for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This trial is going to purify your faith like gold. Or as we prayed earlier from Paul's words to the Romans, we glory in tribulations because tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
and hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. So this is the, the crucible or the furnace that uh, forges, purifies, refines these virtues. And that's going to be important for these Christians in Peter's letter. Now today, virtue signaling is all the rage. In other words, uh, companies will do what frankly costs them nothing to gain the business or admiration of others, Uh, whatever it is. I don't think they really care. We stand with Yemen. We stand with the Ukraine. We stand with Planned Parenthood, whatever. The point is not what they support. The point is that they're doing something, which is super easy, costs them nothing, to get some benefit or some money from it. Social media banners work exactly the same way. What people, though, are primarily supporting is themselves. Unlike virtue signaling, which takes no effort and has no cost, true virtue is always the result of work and cost and struggle, sweat and tears. One concerned college professor summarizes our daily struggle for virtue and the cost in our society of neglecting it. He writes, first, our daily battle against these forces is an unequal battle, since the inclination to evil that dwells within us is more normal and natural than the desire to do good. Second, and even more disturbing, evil tends to increase and spread as if it were bacteria. Just take a difference of opinion between men, for example. As such, that's no evil. But often that escalates into a heated argument. Sometimes men are even killed. Others may hate each other for the rest of their lives and take every opportunity to do each other an injury. In the third and last place, evil is contagious. It easily infects bystanders who are often inclined or forced to take sides. Before you know it, a family, an association, a company, or a society breaks up into two or more factions that will fight one another by fire and sword, or their modern equivalents, for years and even generations to come. And more on that as we get into the letter. But these virtues are being forged in the furnace, the hot furnace of our experience, our trials, our struggles, our conflicts, as we are learning then to be the people that we prayed about earlier, the people who are, in fact, poor in spirit, the people who are meek, those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, peacemakers, pure in heart, etc. This is the character that's forged in the furnace of experience. But let me just make one more um, brief point before we go on. Uh, this, this, I know, uh, is only going to speak to a few of you. It's, it's a brief point that will answer one of the greatest questions in the history of ethics and philosophy. Uh, I think I can do it in less than 30 seconds. In school, you have to take these classes on ethics 
and they throw a whole bunch of contradictory theories at you, right? Okay, students, here's Kant's theory of deontology. Here's Mill's consequentialism. Here's Sartre's existentialism and so forth. Okay, now you go work it out, goodbye. I left my ethics class saying, well, what, what am I supposed to do? It's all these contradictory theories, thank you so much. And it was such a relief for me when I finally sat in my seminary ethics class. And I learned that in, in Christianity, all these meet together, it's the same thing. God's law is the right thing to do in all situations. Deontology is true. And in the light of the final judgment, in the light of eternity, it does produce the most good and the most happiness for the most people. Consequentialism and situation ethics are also true in light of eternity. And being made in the image of God, our highest true human virtues that we want to be consistent with uh, are the virtues of God the lawgiver in whose image we are made. In other words, virtue ethics and existentialism is also true. The problem is as soon as you take God out of ethics, the whole thing blows apart and you have all these contradictory and competing theories. What about this case? What about this case? What about this rule? What about this situation? I don't know. As soon as you put God in, everything becomes just various ways of looking at the same thing. So you notice how our catechism are arranged according to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, at every point then traces it back from the commandment to the virtue of the heart. In Christianity, all these ethical theories they give you are just different ways of talking about the same thing. Deontology is just God's character, what he decrees. And well, I'm sorry, uh, sorry, well, uh, anyway, it's all God's character, what he decrees, and what he rewards. And it's not legalism when it's the desire of a godly heart. It's not pragmatism when we have an eye on the approval and reward of God. That's my point. Back to your regularly scheduled sermon. Thank you. In summary, as I was saying, virtues are divine qualities, point one. They are thought-out habits of the heart, intentionally cultivated on faith, point two, and practiced and refined in the crucible of daily life, verse three. I, I thought maybe, maybe I shouldn't do a whole sermon on virtue. And then I said, what am I talking about? This is like a sermon series on virtue I need to do. I'm going to try to give it to you all in one day. Uh, these things are divine qualities. They are thought-out habits of the heart, intentionally cultivated by faith, and they are practiced, refined in the crucible of daily life. How much we need virtue. But I want to conclude today by speaking about our need our world's need for virtue in light of these things. I would like to spend a little extra time just how important this is. Virtue, to put it bluntly, is a revolutionary idea in today's world and a revolution that we badly need. Another concerned professor writes, if a child's moral growth doesn't keep pace with his physical growth, there may soon be no child. Could this explain why the most common age for suicide today is adolescence? The whole human race is in its adolescence and standing on the edge of a cliff. End quote. America's moral development has all of a sudden just fallen off the charts. It's, it's certainly not keeping pace 
with our growth and development in other areas. Uh, we are much weaker than in previous generations in our very knowledge of virtue. And the loss hasn't come upon us unaware. We pursued it. Willingly and doggingly pursued it in education, in the media, arts, politics, and even, even the church. That is to say, study after study reports that even churches, some churches, no longer believe in truth and virtue, and many Christians no longer believe in any kind of absolute right and wrong. Well, that's his way, that's my way. And they believe in God, they say, but they don't accept his revealed word, preferring their own designer belief systems. And, and then the worship experience that we give is little more than a postmodernist wake of the death of virtue. Our ancestors' problem was that they didn't live up to their principles. But our problem now is far worse. We don't have principles. We have values. Instead of training students in virtue, there's an emphasis now in higher education especially, helping them determine their own values. Um, if you haven't experienced this, if you haven't been in college in the last 30 years, I envy you. <laughs> uh, as you know, you, I had to go back and realize, oh man, this is so much worse even than it was like 20, 30 years ago. It, it, it sounds innocent enough when you call it values clarification. Values clarification. Uh, in, in this uh, procedure, um, approved facilitators, not teachers, mind you, facilitators help individuals state clarify and validate their own choice of values. And this is done in the, nath- in the name of their health and well-being. Um, I mean, it's, it, this is why people are so schizophrenic. is why our whole culture is so divided. If you've, ever, if you've ever gone through this, you know that you are not actually permitted to state and clarify your own values if, if, if you are in any way suggesting that any of your values might be superior to somebody else's values. That's the whole point that we are not supposed to be doing. And as one person put it, the unrelenting message is this. You are approved and accepted, whatever your values, as long as there are values too. That's what you get as a student today. Perhaps one one real value is left tolerance, but not the old tolerance that means you had to bear with other people that you disagree with. That is a virtue. New tolerance is redefined to mean You have to approve, affirm, include, and celebrate everyone else's values, whatever they are. That's actually called equity, another terrible redefinition. So if this all sounds too theoretical for you, I I might need to go to some more modern philosophers, the Doobie Brothers, back in the 70s. They they warned us of the huge change that had come upon the country, uh, calling their album, What Were Once Vices? are now habits. And their albums that followed marked the disintegration of our national hope. Stampede followed. Then taking it to the streets and living on a fault line. And minute by minute, one step closer, and then finally their requiem came, the farewell tour album. In other words, as soon as vice becomes a habit, it's going to be a downhill slide to the end. Ben Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Do you believe that? That's what's at stake. George Washington said, virtue is a necessary spring of popular government, 
and human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. They said that a lot of their revolution was, in fact, just shaking off the corruption of the continent. Very different view of things today. We're dealing with very important issues in American life today. Very important issues. And, and we are painfully aware that as these discussions are happening, they are being conducted with less and less virtue. Just being right is not going to deliver us. I frequently have the thought, listening to our leaders and the pundits that cover them, that even though the cause might be right, the pursuit of it is wretchedly wrong. People are trying to be like the Pharisees, doing what's right in the right way with no virtue. And it's slimy hypocrisy to quote, well, who can't remember who that was now. Um, people are becoming pragmatists. Uh, they only want to do something if they think it'll work. If it doesn't work, they don't care how it works as long as it works. There's an aching lack of virtue. Pragmatism says, what's the point? Character says, I am committed to a courageous devotion to God's will and will suffer for it if I need to. How many more people we need in this country who say, I am committed to a courageous devotion to God's will, no matter what. That is what is lacking. This is a very pressing need. Virtue will not happen at the high levels of culture or government, I assure you, until it happens generally among the people. In 1776, John Adams said, public virtue cannot exist in a nation without private. And public virtue is the only foundation of republics. These early uh, people that laid the foundation of our country say, look, you're only going to be able to keep this republic if the people have virtue. Otherwise, you're going to fall back into totalitarian statism, not their words, but that's what we call it today. This is what is at stake in our struggle. This is why we have such a big need in our world. This is why we have such a big problem in our world today. We need people of virtue. Well, in conclusion, some of you will want to ask, how then can we train a generation of virtuous Christians? Most of the parenting materials I've seen have a great deal to say about uh, uh, learning, discipline, mental and emotional health, uh, order in the home, and so forth. Unfortunately, there's not much out there on the subject of character development, especially from a Christian perspective. And that's an important uh, need. If you've got some good resources, please let me know. And yet, of course, this is not only a question for parents, as Peter writes this to everyone, adding to our faith virtue. This is for all of us. How do we grow? How do we teach it to others? Well, virtue is what happens when godly choices are made so often that they have become internalized. As the old saying goes, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. So a character reap a destiny. Virtue is what happens when somebody has made a thousand small choices requiring effort, 
concentration, to do something which is right and good, though it doesn't come naturally. And then finally, on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find themselves wanting to do what is right and required. People in our generation often talk about being true to themselves. Be true to yourself, which means to often be true to whatever you feel or crave. We need to understand that the only authenticity that really matters is living in accordance with the genuine human being that God has created us and called us to be in Christ and that we are in the process of becoming. And we're not being called to live up to a standard merely. We're calling to love a standard. That is what character does. And that means that we will indeed be following our hearts and living authentically when character is formed, when Christ is formed in us. Spiritual maturity and character cannot be instilled in a series of sermons or lectures. Not to you, not to your children. These things start out with our devotion to the Lord and drawing on His divine power and precious promises that we might live godly in the world, point one. They then have to become our conviction, our settled, thought-out conviction, as well as our direction, as they grow forth from the soil of faith, point two. And these will surely be tested and tried and refined like gold in the heat of a furnace, that every difficult choice we make in life will bring us closer to God and godly character and bring greater glory to Him, point three. And then from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. May it be so in virtue. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that You might mortify in us that pride and self-will which draws us away from finding the fullness of joy and life and satisfaction in Christ. Oh, that we might desire him and delight in him more. And we pray that in our hearts and in our homes, that these new convictions of faith might spring forth in new heights of fruitfulness of life and joy and communion in you, that the fruit of your spirit would be the, the fullness of our life and character. Give us this confidence and joy that as you have begun a good work, so you are able to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We pray that Christ would therefore be our righteousness, that he would be our sanctification, our redemption, that as it is written, he who boasts might boast in the Lord. We pray it in his matchless name. Amen. In the old days, well, I guess I should say really until the previous generation, virtue typically taught in schools 
not so much by way of instruction as by illustration. Did you know that? Um, the stories, the, uh, the lives, the character studies, the biographies, the men, uh, these, these men that we now pull down, we're, we're not perfect, but their stories that elevated certain things were not just about them, they were about us. They were about showing us the kinds of things that we needed to do and to be.